And so if you can, turn with me to the book of James, and I'm going to open us uh, in a word of prayer before we jump into Scripture. Father God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our midst, that there are things that we get to look at and celebrate, that we get to dream about, things that we know you had your hand in, that, that you've kind of drawn along, even when we didn't know where we were walking, you knew all along where you were taking us. And to be able to be in a season where we're seeing the fruit of that and so many different things with an Australia Justice Conference coming up, with Kilns College and these degrees, with people like HD or Ed um, and the collaboration that you're birthing. Just, uh, it's amazing to sit into some of those things, to meet some of the people, to see the bigger body of Christ. It's exciting, Father, and we thank you for it. Um, But we want to at the end of the day, know you personally in our own lives, to have a degree of intimacy, to know how to wrestle out our faith day to day. And it's that that we ask you to speak to us now on, that, that as we look in James, and as we reflect, that you would help us somehow to get a handle on this life of faith. That we might be able to walk forward in obedience and to, to know the joy that would come from that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in James chapter 3, and it's a chapter on wisdom. That's why we picked it. James is a wisdom book. It's one of several in the Bible. Uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, and James would be the ones that are usually put in that category of being wisdom literature. Um, So the whole book is on wisdom. This chapter in particular uh, has a lot to do with wisdom and then speaks to it directly. And when we began, we talked about Taming the tongue and how uh, the mouth and speech and the tongue are a big part of setting up this life that, that James would envision for the people that have converted because of Jesus Christ. Not just said, um, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but have actually converted or are seeking to convert into to being followers. Not just with their speech, but with their whole life and their patterns and the way that they act and think. That, that the tongue is a big part of this. And then as we get further down, we jump in in verse 13, and we read this briefly last week and talked about there's always two choices, um, one or the other when it comes to wisdom. There's always two ways or two paths. But let me read it again. So chapter 3, verse 13 of James, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him or her show it by his good deeds, uh, I'm sorry, by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And James here is picking up on some of the hallmarks of wisdom thinking. Um, I grabbed two Proverbs for you because I want you to see that this is at the heart of wisdom literature. Proverbs 19.8 says, The one who gets wisdom loves life. The one who gets wisdom loves life. I, I love that verse. That, that could be a life verse for somebody. Um, Do you love your life? Do you want to see good days? Do you want to have something happen with the time that you're you're on this earth that's really good that you you can look at and get excited about and say, my life was good. I love my life. And it says simply this, that the one who gets wisdom ultimately is the one who showed love to his life. The one who gets wisdom loves life. There's this connection to the goodness of your life 
um, to, to the joy you're going to find in life, to how much you're going to be able to maximize your life. There's a connection to that with regard to wisdom and decision making and choosing the right of, of the options as you have opportunity. That you steer clear of the landmines, that you don't hit the guardrails too many times, that because of wisdom you're showing that you love your life because you're making it work and you're finding a way to make it work. Proverbs 11.2 says this, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. When pride comes, when you think it's all about you, then comes disgrace. Somehow that cannot work in life. We all know that. That the person that really is radically about only themselves, that, that sooner or later they come to a fall, that, that the community rejects them. Um, they're a cancer. They, they don't speak the language of anyone else. They're not working in harmony. Sooner or later, that pride will not work in community, in family, in relationship, in business. And so with pride eventually comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. As you sit into a humble spot, a spot that doesn't think too highly of yourself, a humble spot that gets on well with the things around you, that allows God to use you because as he elevates you, it's not elevating your ego, it's elevating your position or your authority or your influence. And since you've already shown that it's not about you, you're gonna use that influence for others. So as your self gets higher, you're not turning that into selfish behavior. But what you're doing is you're marrying your self-interest with the interest of others. As you go, so goes everyone else. There's something beautiful about humility. And so it says, with humility comes wisdom. Back to James. Let me read verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. It goes on and says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, you do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. So there's something really interesting about this coupling of envy and selfish ambition. Envy and selfish ambition. The first thing I want to do is just draw a distinction between envy and jealousy because I never used to really understand the difference. They're the same thing. Envy and jealousy is looking out and having a strong emotion uh, when you're looking to what's happening with other people and other things. But there's actually a very key distinction to make between the two. Aristotle said it uh, 2,000 plus years ago. He says this, jealousy... Uh, is both reasonable and belongs to reasonable uh, men, while envy is base and belongs to the base. For the one makes himself get good things by jealousy, while the other does not allow his neighbor to have them through envy. What does that mean? Um, that jealousy could be good. Well, let me read you uh, a few verses along the lines of jealousy being good. Uh, here's... God being jealous, Psalm 78, 58. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. Psalm 79, 5. 
says, how long, O oh Lord, how long will, will you be angry? How long will, will your jealousy burn like fire? So jealousy and envy both have this burning component to them. Uh, but this is God burning with jealousy. Zechariah 8.2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Now God always refers or often refers to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as a, as a she or as a her. Also talks about it as his vineyard. There's a lot of different metaphors. But one of the primary ones is really likening Israel, the nation of Israel, as his bride or his wife, a her. And what begins to happen is that when Israel loses their fidelity with God, when they begin to wander with regard to idols or with regard to following other people uh, or agendas, when they wander, when they stray, that God uh, at that point likens himself to a husband and says, as you're wandering, it's causing me to burn with jealousy. Not because I envy something that somebody else has that I wish I had, that's not mine, but because my thing is somewhere that it doesn't belong and it actually belongs here with me and so I'm burning with jealousy. You're not supposed to have this thing that you have. So I burn with jealousy over it. The difference with envy would be what? The difference with envy, by the way, the Greek for envy really means to boil or to burn. The difference with envy is that you look at something uh, that somebody else has that's not yours. You might not have ever even have thought about it, but when you see it, you covet it. And you say, I wish I was like that person. I wish I had what that person had. I wish I could take part in what they're taking part in. What they, what, what they basically have is their lot in life or what God has blessed them with or what they've earned, I wish were mine. I envy them. I covet what they have. And because of that, I cannot be and I am not content. The, the lot that God gave me, what I have, who I am is not enough. It is not okay. I love my life so much that I think it would be better if I had what you had. I don't love my life as I find it now. I can't accept it as I find it now. I must have more. So there's this, this kind of difference in the way that things burn between jealousy and envy. Jealousy can be a godly jealousy. Uh, it can be a, a kind of jealousy you have when you're, uh, as a parent when your kids are getting pulled by a peer group in a way they shouldn't go and you're jealous and you're saying, I wish I had the influence that their friends seem to, ha uh, seem to have for them because I want what's best for them and, and, and it's not going that way and so I'm jealous for that influence. It, it rightly would be better off if I was the one that was speaking into their life. Um, I'm jealous um, for the opportunity that this person has to do good that should have been maybe mine and they're not using it appropriately. That mantle of, of authority that they have, that, that opportunity to be in leadership or to have responsibility, they're not using it for the good of others. They're actually abusing it. And so I'm actually jealous for that position, not because I want to be like that person, but because I want what they've got so that I can do a better job of it. There's a kind of godly jealousy that you can have that is rightly motivated. 
and driven by the right kind of passions. And you can even burn with that kind of jealousy. But envy, there's no good in envy. Envy is always at all times unspiritual. James will tell us it's of the devil. It literally comes from below, not from above. And so listen to a couple other um, envy verses and just see how scripture treats this concept. Job says resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. Um, The idea here would be there's a simple-mindedness, an animal um, ness, not a human higher capacityness to it, but in your simpleness, you're you're being lured into thinking that there's something better than what God has apportioned to you, and in trying to always run after something else, you're never going to actually accept or enjoy or be grateful or thankful for the life you've been given, and you're going to always be running around trying to attain a different life than the one you have, and because of that, you will have no life. And enjoy nothing. Resentment kills a fool. And envy slays the simple. Proverbs 3.31, very similar. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. Proverbs 24.1 says, do not envy the wicked and do not desire their company. That's probably, as a dad right now, one of my biggest um, verses that I camp on. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I, I'm, a, I'm a boring dad. I'm not a boring dad. I'm going to just try and avoid absolute statements right now. But I'm a dad that does, when I've got my older kids in the car, always try and um, lecture them. Because uh, I'm, I'm the one guy that believes that lectures actually still work. Um, even though it's been disproven by science and and whatever else. Um, I'm always trying to lecture them, but, but in a gentle way. And what it's always about is wisdom. I told my kids years ago, dad is going to try and teach you about wisdom every chance I get. Because I want them to have it in their mind so that they're always aware of the two choices that are presented to us in life. The, the choice of the fool or folly or the choice of the wise or wisdom. I want them to be so aware of it that even if they try and turn a blind eye, it's, it's just there. They just know that this is not the way I should go. I know this is not wise. Um, I want them to be aware of it even if it feels so right, even if they want to do it. I want them to be equipped with that later in life. And so I, I teach them anytime there's an example of um, somebody's life or, or, or the, the kinds of things that would ruin your life, and I try and help them see this. You see how that happens. And do you see how you really are attracted to this person? Why? Well, dad, they were really um, sacrificial and they were really nice and they were really kind to everyone else. Do you want to be like that person? Yeah, I'd like to be like Well, how would that work? What would you have to do to pattern yourself to choose that rather than what the other person was doing in that situation? And I'm drawing the contrast and trying to use real life examples. But here's the thought in the back of my mind all along is if I don't teach them this stuff, they're going to they're gonna fall into the trap I fell into in high school and college, which I think is the great American curse. We envy the wicked. We envy. We, I, used to envy the wicked. Why do they get to do that? Why do they get to live as if 
there's no boundaries. How come they can get away with that? How come it's okay for them but not for me? Really? It's not fair. Um, how come they get to just do whatever they want and then um, go to confession and then somehow it's okay? Like that, if, you know, if there's different choices of how we're going to handle our religion and one is do whatever you want and then say you're sorry, why can't I do that? That's, I mean, every high school boy has that thought. If that one's available, um, then I'll choose that one. We tend to, in America, again, with media, TV, movies, visual culture, being such in the spectator kind of entertainment posture, we tend to see so many things, and they're portrayed in such an incredibly exciting way that we find ourselves at times, um, a lot of the time, envying the wicked. I remember um, when I was in uh, grad schools when the movie Titanic came out. And I know you all saw it. Um, it some of you, she saw it like four times. Um, but, but most of you might have seen it multiple times. But it was that cultural phenomena that happened. I mean, that movie just took and just, I mean, it, it was unbelievable how that movie just um, stormed through American culture. It was, it was amazing, the special effects, everything else, right? Um, so here was the fascinating part of that storyline is you've got this guy um, sneaks on, onto the boat and this guy uh, is, is, gets the girl who's kind of promised in marriage to another guy who's not really as cool as Leonardo DiCaprio and he kind of comes along and sweeps her off her feet and all that. And it is so romantic unbelievably romantic it's this wild and crazy adventure that she's being swept up into and then you even see at the end of the movie that she lived this wild crazy adventure like all the stuff they talked about doing you see these pictures of her riding the horses on the beach and this and that and the other thing and so there's this kind of promise throughout the movie that what's going on with Leonardo, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and her in this um, 36 hour romance um, is the best that can ever happen in life. And I remember coming out of the movie, and at one, t at one point she sees his sketches, and, and he's been painting um, uh, prostitutes in Paris, I think it was, under bridges, was, was kind of what he was doing. Uh, and then he found a way to get uh, a poker game to get onto this boat for the maiden voyage. And, and I remember when it occurred to me, that how romantic would it have been if the movie, the last hour of it, had stretched out for the next year and a half of their life when they got to New York City. And she's living under bridges with Leonardo DiCaprio as he's, as he's sketching prostitutes. I mean, it's, it's a different picture than, than, what, than what was presented, but it's the log is it, isn't it the logical outworking of where that whole relationship was going? Does that make sense? Now, not to judge one way or the other, but the point is, is what's shown to you and what we respond to as, a, as Americans or as the viewing audience of this movie, what we look at and go, oh, if only life could be like that, is actually not real. Reality, um, most of reality, goes beyond 36 hours. And the consequences of decisions 
goes further down the road, and wisdom understands that, that time extends and that decisions have consequences and that you can envy the wicked, but if you really watch their life long enough, it's not the life that you want. The life that you want is the life, the good life that comes from wisdom. The good life that comes is you make the decisions that allow God to come alongside you and affirm those decisions and begin to bless you as you move forward using your influence, your time, your energy, your money wisely to bless others. Um, I want my kids to know that, that romance goes beyond 36 hours. I want my kids to be able to watch a movie and to not get sucked into that, kind of this siren song uh, that happens as we, as we look at things in American culture and think somehow, if I had that, if I lived that, if my marriage was like that, if my job was like that, if my bottom line income could be where that's at, if I could make the kinds of decisions or throw off the restraints that that person did, Maybe life would be a little easier. I could get by better. We tend to envy the wicked. I want my daughters to know it's not wise to envy the wicked. It's not going to lead you somewhere better. It's going to actually lead you somewhere worse. And so this idea of envy and selfish ambition. Um, selfish ambition is actually, ironically, in the Greek, uh, a political word. It's, it's the desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and fractious spirit which does not disdain the low arts of partisanship. Um, it's basically approaching life from a, a political, in, in the negative sense of that word, political standpoint. That selfish ambition, it really does couple with envy, doesn't it? That basically says, I'm going to maneuver and I'm going to posture and I'm going to do it very well. And I'm going to do it with no regard to what happens for anyone else. I'm going to enter into my political arrangements. I'm going to enter into to these kinds of things purely to move through the water, not really ultimately to, to bless the kingdom of God or to bring other people along with me. And so um, this idea or this phrase here is really what we celebrate in America but I think if we really camp on it long enough, we know that somehow that can't be the right thing. To look out for number one or, or to fight your way forward or to always get ahead, it just somehow can't be the end of the story. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. You can call yourself an entrepreneur. It's a great way to mask it. Um, you can call yourself a visionary you can call yourself a leader. You can call yourself a lot of things, but don't boast about it if what you're really harboring is selfish ambition and you're boiling, the Greek word, boiling and burning with envy. There's a, uh, I once had a conversation with somebody that says, hey, listen, it seems like in the church we always beat up on ambition. And I'm a, a husband, I'm a caretaker, I'm, I'm trying to provide for family, I'm, I'm a starter of businesses. Ambition is the way I'm wired. It seems like we're always beating up on that. And I, I would agree with that statement. Paul was ambitious. Um, Peter was ambitious, arguably. Um, the idea here is selfish ambition. 
I'm looking to start a job and I don't care about how I'm going to treat my employees. Matter of fact, if I exploit them, that's okay. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference between ambition to do good, to build, to create, to be successful at what I put my hands to. When I go to make something, to make it beautiful, there's a, there's a difference between that kind of ambition that also says as I do that, I'm able to bless more people and bless other people. Um, there's a difference between that and selfish ambition. Does that make sense? And if you're a type A and if you're an entrepreneur and if you're wired to really have drive, that's okay. God made you the way he made you. Use it to bless the body of Christ. Use it to take care of the people that God, that God puts into your circle of influence. Use it to bring salt and light to this earth. Show a better way. Show a more creative way. Show that you can actually conduct your business ethically and still turn a profit. Work harder than those that are just simply ambitious from a selfish standpoint. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, please listen to this, when envy and selfish ambition are present, there you find disorder in every evil practice. That sounds like religious spiritual talk, doesn't it? I want, to, I want to translate that real quickly for us. Um, I, want to, uh, if, I want to beat up on high school or college just simply for this reason. It's the time in American life where we've created space for adolescence to extend for a very long period of time and to have a lot of leisure time so that um, people of the same age are able to just uh, hang out for, for a lot of time, which, by the way, is a really bad idea. I mean, you, I have four daughters, but I'm a guy. And the reason I don't want my daughters to have guy, uh, any guys in their life until age 22 is because what happens if you put a bunch of guys with no responsibility and a whole lot of um, leisure, what, hap- what happens if you put a whole bunch of guys together with those conditions? Vandalism's what, that's what happens. <laughs> Why would I want my daughter being involved in that? You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm overstating it. Hopefully you get the sarcasm. But where, where envy and selfish ambition exists, you're going to have disorder in every kind of evil practice. If we put a bunch of people together and don't show them a higher way, don't lead them out of that into how they can live for good and actually begin to make good on the life that God gave them. I still feel like I wasted a lot of my life. I am jealous when I see people do music because I, I was supposed to be able to do something constructive in my life. But I didn't become a, a serious Christian early enough because if you're an 18-year-old Christian, you learn how to play guitar. You, you go to Campus Crusade and FCA. You know what I'm talking about. Every Christian guy in college I met, I, I, I really thought, age 22, I'm walking into these, these college groups, and I was like, what happened here? Everybody's got a guitar, and everybody knows how to play those four chords that are in every Christian worship song, right? And I felt really out of place, and I was like, I need something. It's like a cup at a party that you hide behind. I was like, I need a guitar to... I. And I, but I missed that window. 
And so I, it's not envy, it's jealousy, actually, because it should have been mine. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I lost out on some of life. Because no one, sh- you know, I, I didn't have the right situation, or I wasn't smart enough. I made the wrong choices. That's my responsibility. But I, I want to not come down on my daughters or, or college kids or 20-somethings or whatever it might be. I don't want to come down on people and say, because I made mistakes, now you get it right. I want to look at people and say, listen, I made mistakes. If you want to know the consequences to that, I'd be happy to share those with you. I have wisdom now. Let me show you a better way. Let me help you understand that if you really want what's best, take advantage of this time. Ten years from now, you're going to wish that you knew how to play a musical instrument. You're going to wish that you'd traveled instead of drinking. Um, That was my vice. I, I wish I could get that time back. But I can use that, hopefully, with certain people to say, we now know that there's a better way. And so let's encourage each other towards that better way. Desire for a good life is the best way to sell wisdom on people. Selling it on people like it's religious obligation and duty is not what James is doing here. James is, is, is shepherding us and saying, listen, if you love life, if you want what's good, If you want to get the blessings, he goes on next week when we get into it and shows us this kind of reward for wisdom. But he says, if you want what's desirable when when all things are known, then you're not going to envy. You're not going to kind of follow after the wicked. You're not going to make the wrong choice. You're going to choose wisely. Why? Because you yourself should care enough about your own life to make the decisions that are going to bless your own life. Now, we've all made mistakes. Um, And some of us are stubborn enough, maybe that was my problem, stubborn enough that we have to make those mistakes ourselves to learn that the grass isn't greener on the other side, the grass is greener where you water it. That was the, I mean, that was the biggest epiphany I had when I was like, man, (laughs) I tried a lot of really dumb things and how come none of them really made me happy? Well, maybe it was because I was chasing after mirages, lies, things that look good, cotton candy. But actually, when I settle down and nurture the life God's given me, accept the life God's given me, accept who God has made me, Except that it's not all about me, but I, I get to be a part of community and family. When I settle into that and nurture that life, it turns out the grass is greener where we water it. So, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. I just want you to hear that all of these words, by the way, are relational words. Relational words about community, um, being united with other people, they're things that allow us to be um, in healthy relationships. Wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. 
We're going to get into it next week, but he closes this section by saying, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. But if we stopped before verse 18, what we find is that this whole little section of James 13 through 17 is a descriptive, not a prescriptive passage. James isn't answering the how do I get the wise life question. He's not doing what Jesus says in John 15 about the how. If you remain in me, then you'll be able to bear much fruit. That's, that's the prescriptive thing. This is what you have to do. What James is doing is he's describing the lay of the land. He's saying, look, this is what it is. This is how it is. Test it and see. Go look for selfish ambition and envy and you'll probably see disorder and chaos, not goodness. Go look for these virtues of peace-loving and considerate and, and, uh, and I bet you're going to find healthy community where people are enjoying relationships that are healthy. And, and because of that, there's a fruit. They feel good. Like, wow, I, I enjoy my life. I enjoy my job. I enjoy my family and my relationships. Test it and see. But James is being descriptive here. Not prescriptive. So as a sermon, as I'm trying to bring it to conclusion, do I go and say, here's how you become wise from above, not from below. Here's the prescription or the application. I want to save that for next week. What I want to simply say now is there's, a, there's something incredibly healthy about sitting in life and looking at it and weighing it out and analyzing it from the descriptive side of things. By the way, this is what we've lost with Bible reading. There's a new article, you can go find it. It's Biola Magazine, they have it online, but one of my friends, uh, he's a professor there, Ken Birding, wrote, wrote a whole article on the decline of biblical literacy. And it's not one of those weird, boring articles. It's got cool charts and graphs and, and uh, all sorts of analysis. It's pretty poignant, but, but the I mean, the bottom line is, no matter how you slice it, we don't know the Bible. We don't know the Bible. Certainly not as much as we used to in the church or in Christian circles. Which means we're not reading things like this and, and sitting in it and, and um, baking in it and, and whatever, boiling it. I don't know. We're not in it. We're not, we're not bringing our life to it and letting it surface what's happening with regard to us or our decisions or our choices. It's not calling to mind, like I'm hoping will happen with my daughters, this, this ability to see truth even if you wish you could turn it off. You see what, what decisions are and how they all have consequences. We're not bringing that to the forefront. It's, it's, not, it's not there. And there's something incredibly powerful about descriptive language of truth. This is how it is. This is what life is like. This is what it would look like if you made good decisions. This is what it would look like if you made bad decisions. Here's really why you should make good decisions. It's in your best interest. That kind of stuff, it's not right there. Culturally for us anymore. Our time is spent elsewhere. There's something powerful about descriptive things. I told you last week that I was reading through my old journals um, and, uh, and I told a joke and nobody laughed and then it really bothered me all day 
because it was important to me that you guys understood it was a journal, not a diary. And when I said it, you guys made me feel dumb. Um, and I was saying something that I really needed to communicate and you guys just didn't even receive it. Um, this was my journal. Okay? My journal. Uh, and I was reading through it. And I got to the part. Um, so it was really weird. I got to the part. I just randomly opened it, and it was the day that God called me to plant a church, 1997. It was really weird for me. Kind of cool, by the way. Um, really weird. Uh, I would have read it to you, but it sounded a little bit too much like a diary entry. Um, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't bring it to read to you, but really cool. Then uh, another journal, I was reading it, and all of a sudden it, it was when I met Tamara. And then the next, like, half of the journal is like the same thing just over and over. I'm really insecure. Why does she make me feel so insecure? Why does she treat me like this that makes me feel so insecure? Because Tamara played really hard to get. Um, and she played it really well, and she played it for a very long time. She actually played it uh, all the way up until the I do. Um, so, she, she, I mean she, so if you want to play hard to get, Tamara can give you some good advice. But so I, 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 I sat into that, that I can't control life, that it's not all revolving around me, that I really don't know how to maneuver the different things that are coming my way, what, what the right decisions really are, what they look like. And so I would sit in my journal and write that out and then it always would turn into a prayer or some scripture would come to mind and I'd begin to apply that to my life and I just sat there with life, with the, the, the messiest at that time, the messiest of my life, the, the most difficult, the most beautiful and the most difficult all at the same time. And guys, just so you know, if you're single, the lesson I learned, um, which is the best lesson I ever learned was uh, when you're dating a girl and you're insecure, you hide it from her at all cost. It's actually um, the, the wise thing to do. Because uh, if you start acting insecure, you're like trying to like get her to tell you whatever's going to make you feel better. And, and then you actually look like someone that she doesn't want to date. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? So this is some dating advice. Um, it's not lying. It's, it's, uh, it's non-disclosure. Um, uh, so, so my, my journal caught, caught all of those thoughts. Um, but there's something beautiful about describing life, describing your internal life, the struggles, the fears, the anxieties, they're real. Oftentimes they're big financial stuff, job stuff. Um, feeling like you got somebody that's out to get you. That's a crazy experience. You know what I mean? Like you can't hide from it. Like they're out there wanting to burn me down. Like I can't, it, it doesn't go away. You know what I'm talking about? That's crazy stuff that happens in life. And what do you do with that? Well, you put it out and you bring scripture and you bring prayer. And as you're doing that, there's something incredibly beautiful that just happens as, as the descriptive stuff is in front of you. It allows God to kind of just lead you in the right ways. It, it, they, they surface, they emerge, the right decisions and paths, your gut, uh, whatever it is happens. And so I think we need to learn 
that the descriptive stuff hasn't gotten enough of its due. We're always into the self-help side of uh, me, us, all of us, Americans, the quick stuff, the formula, um, the application. But there's something about where are you bringing just truth into your life? Where are you being honest with your own truths and the stuff in your heart? Where, where is the prayer time where you're just letting God shine lights on things? Just light it up so that you can see it, so that he can show you what you're not seeing, so that it can be honest, so that the awkward stuff that you're not saying gets put on the table and now all of a sudden becomes less awkward and it allows you to be more true. Where, where's the descriptive stuff? And that's what I find is going on here about James and, and I, I find myself resonating with it. That you know what, we need more of just the truth part in our life. Next week we can talk about the real big aha application. So do this and then that happens. If then, and it's fun and we get to talk about it in the, in the context of art and all that kind of cool stuff. But this week I just want to simply end on the descriptive. So the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. How does that compare to my life? those words even resonate? If so, why? If not, why not? So I'm going to close and read a psalm as my prayer. By the way, learning to pray the psalms is an incredibly beautiful thing. If everything's going right in your life, don't even bother. They won't even make sense to you. But um, when I was dating Tamara, um, I learned how to pray the psalms. Um, and there was some up around the high 130s and the low 140s that were like unbelievable to me. David talking about, God, you are my portion in the land of the living. And I'm like, you know what? If that's all I've got, then I've got enough. I can be secure and I can go present a secure face to this person that I'm dating because if I've got that, that's enough. I don't have to, I don't have to be a politician. And I don't have to envy. I can be strong right here. Um, so the Psalms, when, when stuff's going on in your life, they're beautiful. Learn to pray them. It's, it's first person language wrestling out human experience with God. It's beautiful. It teaches you how to pray about the honest things going on in your heart. By way of closing, I just want to read Psalm 1 and then we're done. Nothing, nothing to follow. Um, Psalm 1 says this. Descriptive language. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He soaks in it. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish.